Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. Well, as you all probably know, there have been many attempts to teach human language to apes. But thus far, no ape has surpassed the level of language competence of about a three-year-old human child. And that, of course, suggests that there must be something fundamentally different about the human brain that allows us to keep going where apes stop. One obvious possibility for, for explaining why humans have language is the fact that our brains are between three and four times larger than the brains of chimpanzees, for example. But the problem with this hypothesis is that there are actually some human beings with chimpanzee-sized brains. Um, we call these people microcephalics. And the high-functioning among them have language abilities that exceed those of language-reared chimpanzees. And so that suggests that language isn't only about quantitative differences in the brain, but it's also about qualitative differences. There must also be some differences in the way the brain is organized. So what do we know about how the human brain processes language? Well, this is the classic model of, of brain language processing that you're apt to see in textbooks today. It was proposed by uh, Geshwin back in the 1970s. And according to this uh, model, there's an area back here in the posterior part of the left superior temporal gyrus, um, which is known as Wernicke's area, which is involved in speech comprehension. And there's another area up here in the left inferior frontal cortex known as Broca's area, and that's involved in speech production. And those two areas are connected by a very thick bundle of white matter fibers um, called the arcuate fasciculus. So if we were going to look for special features of the human brain that could explain why we have language, it would make sense to look in these general areas. What you see here on the, on the left-hand side is a surface reconstruction of a rhesus macaque brain, and on the right is a surface reconstruction of a human brain, and the macaque brain has obviously been uh, enlarged to the size of the human brain. But what you see in color are those areas of the cerebral cortex that are involved in processing visual information in rhesus macaques and in humans. And back in uh, 1998, a neuroscientist by the name of Leslie Ungerleider made an important observation, which was that you know, it seemed that relative to the position of the visual cortical areas in macaques, the human visual cortical areas had been displaced in a sort of posterior and ventral direction. And she said, you know, they look, they look to be in a somewhat different position, such that there's this very large expanse of cortex in the human brain that in macaques would be devoted to vision, but in humans is not devoted to vision. It's involved in something else. And she speculated at that time that that sort of additional expansion of cortex was an evolutionary adaptation for language that evolved in, in the human lineage. So what I'd like to do today is to um, try to evaluate that hypothesis a little bit further with some additional evidence. And specifically, I'll try to answer two questions related to that hypothesis. Um, first, has there indeed been expansion of cortex on the lateral surface of the human temporal lobes? And secondly, 
do we know whether this cortex is in fact involved in language? And just to put you out of your suspense, um, the answer to both of those will be yes. Okay, so I'll try now to show you some evidence in support of those answers. Um, I'll talk about evidence from structural MRI scans, from a newer technique called diffusion tensor imaging and tractography. Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, studies of stroke patients and, and the lesions that they have. And then, uh, finally, a little bit about uh, functional MRI studies. So first, has there indeed been expansion of this cortex? And it's an important point that to answer that question, we can't just compare humans and macaque monkeys, because rhesus macaques are a quite distant evolutionary relative of ours. We really need to compare humans with chimpanzees because they're our closest living primate relative. It's only when we find uh, a character of the brain that's present in human but is not present in chimps or other primates that we can conclude that this is truly a human specialization. So the chimp data points are critical for these types of um, studies. So, well, one obvious question is, what does visual cortex look like in chimps? Do they look more human-like, or do they look more macaque-like? Well, unfortunately, the methods that were used to map visual cortex in macaques are too invasive for us to use in chimpanzees, and the methods that were used in humans are really too impractical for us to use in chimps. It involves functional um, MRI, which is difficult to do in chimps. So... We don't really know exactly where the visual cortical areas are in chimpanzees. But thankfully, it turns out that just using garden variety structural brain imaging, we can gain some insights into where the visual cortex is located in chimps. And so this is an adult female chimpanzee being uh, prepared for her MRI scan. She's anesthetized and um, getting ready to go into the MRI scanner. The uh, image that you see on your left is what we call a T1-weighted MRI image, and the image that you see on your right is a T2-weighted MRI scan. And um, this is pretty much looks like the negative of the T1 scan. We can put subjects in the MRI scanner, and we can acquire a T1-weighted scan of their brain, and then we can acquire a T2-weighted scan of their brain. And then what we can do is we can make a third image which is the ratio of the T1-weighted signal to the T2-weighted signal. And that's what um, my former student and now colleague Matthew Glasser has done, and I'm going to be showing a lot of the work that he's done recently. Um, This is, in fact, uh, a T1-weighted to T2-weighted image, and what you're seeing is the the, the, uh, surface reconstruction of that image. And what he's done here is he's applied a color scale so that the regions that have the highest T1 to T2 ratio are in red and yellow, and the regions with the lowest T1 to T2 ratio um, are in this sort of blue to to purple range or, or no color at all. Okay, the reason this is interesting is that it turns out that the ratio of T1 to T2 is very closely correlated with the distribution of myelin across the cerebral cortex. So most of you probably know that myelin is the fatty substance that coats axons that are the connections in the brain. 
And the same regions that are very heavily myelinated also have a very high ratio of T1 to T2. It turns out that the most highly myelinated areas of the cortex are the primary cortical areas. So this is the primary motor cortex. This is the primary somatosensory cortex. This is the primary auditory cortex. And this is the primary visual cortex. These other areas are, that are less highly myelinated are the heteromodal association cortex, where information from different sensory modalities is integrated, and some of the higher cognitive processing is going on. So this is a really exciting tool because it's, it allows us to sort of parse the cortex up into areas that are involved in, in perception, the, the basic primary cortical areas, and areas that may be involved in more conceptual processing, the association areas of the cortex. Okay, so then uh, Matt went ahead and did the same analysis in the chimpanzee um, cortex, and I think the first obvious thing that you notice is that there's a whole lot more color in the chimp um, cortex, which implies that there's a much greater proportion of primary cortical areas in the chimp brain or a much smaller proportion of those higher-order association cortices. If we put the human and chimp brain side by side, you can see it even more obviously, I think. So the, the chimp brain here has been enlarged to the size of the human brain, and these brains are kind of inflated a little bit so you can see the sulci um, better. But um, you can see that that there's uh, a lot more association cortex here in humans. I want to draw your attention, though, to the temporal lobe because I'm talking about language today and uh, point out a couple of areas. So I mentioned that primary auditory cortex is, is this region here in chimps and in humans, it's um, right here. And then these areas back here are visual cortical areas, area MT and area MST, and chimps, and you can see that they're very close to primary auditory cortex in the chimp brain. But in humans, um, those areas are some distance away from primary auditory cortex. And in particular, there's been a lot of expansion in this uh, association cortex down here involving the middle temporal gyrus, abbreviated MTG, and also the superior temporal sulcus, which is the sulcus just above it. So it really does look like there's been some important expansion of cortex, of association cortex, on the lateral surface of the temporal lobe in humans. And so uh, my answer to the first question is yes. Um, let's move on then to the second question. What is the evidence that this cortex is in fact involved in language? Well, I mentioned that this fiber pathway called the arcuate fasciculus um, is a known language pathway. So one question we might ask is, does the arcuate fasciculus project to this region of expanded lateral temporal cortex in humans? Right? If a language pathway um, connects with this area of cortex, it implies that that cortex may be involved with language. Um, so with uh, this newer technique called diffusion tensor tractography, we're able to make reconstructions of fiber tracks um, after imaging people or chimpanzees in vivo. And the technique is based simply on the diffusion of water. So you image the diffusion of water in the brain. And it turns out that water will uh, preferentially diffuse parallel to the direction in which fibers are oriented uh, rather than perpendicular to them. 
And so we can use the information about the direction of uh, water diffusion in the brain to um, make these types of reconstructions of uh, pathways. So this is the arcuofasciculus, and this is the, its termination in Wernicke's area, and Broca's area would be um, up there. So we reconstructed the um, arcuofasciculus pathway in humans, chimpanzees, and rhesus monkeys. And our results are shown over here on the left-hand side, but let me uh, just sort of summarize for you schematically over on the right. So we found that the arcuofasciculus um, indeed projected to classic Wernicke's area in the posterior part of the superior temporal gyrus, but that projection was dwarfed by a massive projection uh, ventral to it that hits um, both the superior temporal sulcus and especially the middle temporal gyrus. So indeed, the very same regions that seem to have expanded in human evolution are the targets of the arcuate fasciculus language pathway. In chimps, um, we also found a projection into what we believe is the homologue of Wernicke's area in chimps, but there were very minimal projections ventral to that. And in uh, rhesus monkeys, um, we also found a projection to what's thought to be the homologue of uh, Wernicke's area in, in rhesus monkeys. Here you can see what Matt has done for us here is shown us um, the cortical surface terminations of the arcuate fasciculus pathway. So this is the regions of the cortex that receive fibers of the arcuate fasciculus. So the, the fascicle is actually buried down in the white matter um, underneath the surface of the brain. But this is where it comes up and hits the surface of the cortex. And what he's done here is just outlined roughly the posterior border of those arcuate fasciculus terminations on the cortex. And what you'll see is that coincides very well with the anterior border of the uh, visual cortices that are back here, these heavily myelinated visual cortices. And so it looks for all the world like the um, cortex that is receiving the arcuate fasciculus projections, this language cortex, is sort of pushing the visual cortex around in the human brain, which is what Leslie Ungerleiter had hypothesized. Um, here's further evidence to suggest that the arcuate fasciculus is pushing visual pathways around in the human brain. This pathway here is the inferior longitudinal fasciculus, the ILF, and that's the ventral visual stream um, pathway in the human brain. It's a, it's a pathway that's involved with processing the identity of seen objects. Okay, so this is a, a visual system pathway, and this is the arcuate fasciculus. And in this coronal section, you can see that the arcuate fasciculus butts right up against that visual system pathway. But in chimpanzees, you can see those two pathways are separate at this point. And in fact, um, the angle of the ILF is much different in humans. Um, it's actually at a much steeper angle and we think that's because the, the arcuate is pushing that pathway in a ventromedial um, direction. Additional evidence that this cortex in the middle temporal gyrus and the superior temporal sulcus is involved in language comes from studies of um, stroke patients that uh, develop uh, aphasias. Um, so this shows you the foci of, of brain damage that results in impairment in auditory sentence comprehension. Um, and those are the exact areas that we've been talking about, STS 
and MTG. This is a review um, by uh, Dronkers et al. And um, finally, a final source of evidence comes from functional MRI studies where you put subjects in an MRI scanner and you image their brain's function as they're performing um, different verbal semantic tasks. And uh, these are the areas in pink that are activated most often across lots and lots of different studies. And so once again, the, the middle temporal gyrus is a prime candidate. You don't see the STS here, but there are other reviews that have argued that the superior temporal sulcus is involved in some components of syntax. So when we think about the special features of human language, we think of syntax, the, the rules about how we put words together into sentences And we also think about lexical semantics, how we understand the meaning of words. And I think this area of cortex is is a really key area for those two um, functions. So um, my answer to the second question is also yes. And um, let me just uh, go ahead and summarize um, what I've said. Uh, First, that human brain evolution appears to have been characterized by expansion of this association cortex on the lateral surface of the left temporal lobe. Um, Second, this expanded cortex is receiving projections from the arcuate fasciculus, which is a known language pathway. So we think the cortex is involved in language. It also looks as though the arcuate fasciculus may have pushed this uh, ILF pathway ventromedially in the human brain. And finally, Uh, lesion and fMRI studies also implicate this region as being involved in language. Um, I'd like to thank uh, especially uh, Matt Glasser, who did most of the analyses in this uh, talk. Um, Todd Preuss has been instrumental in all this work. This is a um, project that is being led by him and and Jim Herndon at the Yerkes Primate Center to acquire all of these MRI scans from chimpanzees. Um, I'd like to thank the imaging, the imaging people in our imaging centers and also um, Dr. Tim Behrens at the University of Oxford. Thank you very much for your attention. Great. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, Looking forward to these wonderful sessions. My topic, um, uh, which is about the molecular basis of speech. So, uh, Rusty mentioned one big hope or technological advance in the last decade has our amazingly increased ability to read DNA. So, certainly, um, for these old questions, what is unique about humans or especially about the human brain, uh, genome sequencing has certainly put, put out a big hope in order to explain that. So there's this famous figure that we differ by 1%. So since we have the human genome and the chimpanzee genome sequence, we can just simply compare how actually we do differ. A hu- one human and one chimp genome differs by about 35 millinucleotide substitutions, which makes this famous 1% difference. Um, these are not the only differences, genetic differences. There are also insertions and deletions of pieces of DNA making up uh, 5 millions altogether of various lengths can be rather big um, in size, up to millions of bases. And for the part of the genome, in addition, various rearrangements of chromosomes, for example, our chromosome 2 is a fusion of two ancestral chromosomes. And on the part we understand best, maybe um, the protein coding part, you have altogether 60,000 amino acid substitutions or two amino acid differences per protein on average. 
So just to give you a feeling about some numbers that we actually have in hand, um, a catalog where we differ on a genomic level to our closest relatives. And together with, um, with the genomes that are available from closest outgroups like the orangutan or the rhesus monkey, we can actually have a pretty precise catalog of genetic changes that took place during this period of about six million years. And because the difference between chimps and a human is 40 million, 35 million active, uh, substitutions plus 5 million insertions and deletions, each of them has the same amount of time um, behind us, making that about on approximately 20 million genetic changes. So 1% doesn't seem much, but 20 million does. Um, and one can be optimistic or pessimistic about these numbers. But what I think is, after all, remarkable, um, it's, it's, it's a space. It's a limited space, right? And, um, but it's also pretty clear that um, the patterns we see is actually overall, um, and uh, Todd already mentioned that there might be one signature of, for example, brain-related metabolism that uh, might be more changed on this lineage. Um, and I do injustice to a huge number of studies that try to point out particular features of genomic evolution that happened during that time. It's still true, I think, or fair to say, that by large, these patterns we see in genomic changes, so in which proteins it changes and, and how strong it changes in regulatory, whether it's structural regions of the genome, are typical for a primate or a mammalian genome. There's, of course, much to learn about it, but it's also clear that we, if we want to make a link between the genotypic changes and the phenotypic changes we're interested in, we have a, a pretty severe statistical problem in the sense that all these things are confounded or totally correlated, right? So in order to make a link between particular genetic changes and particular phenotypes, we need to add information. There's n nothing we can do. Where does this information can come from? Um, one type of information can come from analyzing patterns of of DNA sequence evolution that might point to parts of our genome or to particular genes that have experienced positive selection, meaning changes in those genes or in these regions of the genome um, had had some uh, selective advantage during human evolution. The other thing is, of course, that we know particular phenotypic changes, although much less than previously thought, but just as heard in the previous talk, um, we have ways to actually have a much better characterization of which phenotypes precisely actually did change. And then, of course, thirdly, we increase our knowledge on a daily basis, I would say, about how particular genes functions in which contexts. So I think these three areas can be used in order to form specific hypotheses about specific genetic changes that have an influence on particular specific phenotypes during human evolution. And with usual with hypothesis, I think one has to be really careful in order to lay out the evidence. Of course, already, again, as mentioned before, there are several interesting uh, changes in the phenotype um, we might want to look at, like the maximum lifespan is one that I think is really tremendous. One thing is certainly language, but another thing that is part of language is our ability to, to do what I now try to do, namely to uh, vocalize uh, pretty voluntarily, at least largely, um, <laughs> um, meaning our ability to have speech. And if you, I mean, if, you, if you see children, how they pick up and try hard to actually babble and vocalize, and if you compare that to chimpanzees, even if they're raised within human context, that's a huge, huge, huge difference. And it's hard to imagine that such a difference would not have 
some genetic basis to it. In order to have a link to genes, so, so here we have um, a phenotypic change, and now we need some gene function associations. And um, for speech, or even language, there are hardly any, um, but the most well-studied and more, most clear link to that comes from a family that's called the KE family that has, a, um, that has a disease that is called developmental verbal dyspraxia. Uh, it has been described in the 90s for the first time, and it's a large family of where half of the family members have a pretty distinct uh, problem in learning to speak. So what you can see is what, what you should have heard is um, three people of this family that are affected and despite their age um, are clearly very, very um, impaired in their ability to speak. Um, and this has been examined on a pretty detailed level, um, especially by the lab of um, Farhani Varga Cardam in London. It's pretty clear that this that this disease affects receptive and expresses verbal abilities all in all kinds of levels, especially those where it has to do with the processing of complex words and non-words. So asking them to um, pronounce hippopotamus is a pretty hard thing. Um, and I only can do it without mistakes because I always use the same example. Um, uh, and also other orofacial movements like uh, stick out your tongue, lick over your lips, um, they are impaired. And MRI studies and PET studies show that this has a clear, um, that there, this is associated with clear neurological features. One particular um, pictures example are, as usual, fMRI scans. So this is a task where the participants are asked to think of a word when they hear a particular um, other word. So they hear bathroom and they think towel, and you can make sure that everybody understands the tasks. And around Barocca's area, just has been introduced by Jim, um, is the area that is known to light up in these kind of tasks in unaffected individuals. Interestingly, the affected group shows, although it can also do the task, a pretty um, diverse um, activity in the right and left hemisphere of the cortex, um, sparing uh, uh, the area around Broca's area. So maybe having, making the clearest example that the feature or that what goes wrong in these um, affected family members is something that acts on a higher neurological level and is necessary in order to develop normal speech and language. Um, more than 10 years ago, Simon Fisher and colleagues um, mapped the genetic cause for that because they found an unrelated boy with a chromal breakpoint in the, in the region that has a break in the gene that was then called FOXP2 for forkhead protein 2. And they then were able to, to sequence a family in the same gene and found that all the family members have one copy of FOXP2 gene that has a mutation in this DNA binding domain of this transcription factor. And later on, people also found other patients with similar phenotypes that had a stop mutation um, in this gene, making it pretty clear that you need two functional genes, um, two functional FOXP2 genes, in order to have normal speech and language abilities. And it's still, unfortunately, the only single gene that is so well connected to, to that phenotype. I would love to have hundreds of them, although it would make my world certainly more complicated. Um, but still, yeah, it's the only single gene that is so clearly and well-studied linked to our ability to speak. So obviously then, what, what, what lacks is um, how does this gene evolve? Because we want to, after all, make not a claim about a function, but a claim about uh, the basis of evolution. So it's a very, very conserved transcription factor, differing only at three positions of uh, the 715s. So there are three differences between mouse and humans, 
making it among the 5% most conserved proteins you have between those two species. But interestingly, two of those happened just in the last 6 million years after we split from the chimp. And this general pattern holds up if you compare several primates or um, even recently much more mammals. So during human evolution, FOXP2 protein changed more than you expect for such a conserved protein. This is per se, especially if you would now be a statistician and say, well, but there are 20,000 proteins you need to correct for multiple testing, out it goes, right? But as I say, we need to add information from different fields in order to make one hypothesis in this case. Um, from these evidence I just showed you that maybe these two amino acid changes in FOXP2 contributed to our ability to have speech and language. And the big question, I think maybe the biggest question in the field of uh, human evolutionary genetics is, what can you do at that stage, right? Um, because a, a normal geneticist would make, choose an organism where it can cross um, individuals in order to separate all these different genetic changes from the different phenotypic changes. But obviously, um, out of various reasons, this is not an option if you study human evolution. It's also not an option um, to genetically engineer humans and chimpanzees for technical, ethical, financial reasons. So those two normally taken routes are certainly out of the window. There's one interesting aspect um, I really like, because we're so many humans that all mutations that are somehow compatible with life exist several hundred folds on this planet. So you can calculate that given the mutation rate of these positions, every generation of 12 billion chromosomes, you get 200 chromosomes born that have the reversed mutation back to the chimp. But obviously, this is also not a good project if you think about a postdoc project um, <laughs> to find these 200. But eventually, maybe, especially if our capabilities to sequence DNA might increase even much more, um, we might find some individuals that actually are the natural experiment that we cannot do in the lab. Yeah, and then you can do what, what, what any biologist or biochemist can do. You can find a model system, either in vitro, study the biochemistry, or do it in cell lines. But unfortunately, for the trade we are interested in, there are not very good biochemical or even cell line models. That's probably true for many of the phenotypes we're interested in in human evolution. They involve rather complex organs, especially the brain. Um, and it's pretty hard to model the brain in, on a cell line. Um, so the biggest, the, the main organism we have for modeling that is the mouse, right? So, um, and I think also in the, also in the midterm or even long-term future, it will be our only chance to realistically approach these questions because we will hardly be able to, at least on a large scale, to do that in any primates, not to talk about the ethical problems um, that might cause. So what we did, we made a mouse um, that had the human version of FOXP2. Uh, and you can read many details in that paper that is now two years old. So how we do it, that's kind of standard technology. So this is a gene, the FOXP2 gene in the mouse or in the human doesn't really matter because it's, it's the same structure. And these two amino acid changes that we're interested in are luckily in one exon. So we can make a construct which knocks in these two amino acid changes in the normal endogenous FOXP2 gene of the mouse. And then we can cross these mice and compare litter mates that either have two versions of the humanized version of this gene um, or carry the wild-type version of this gene. So we can, in a mouse background, model the effects of what happens to a mouse if it has these two amino acid changes introduced. So, yeah, so these mice are humanized 
but only for these two amino acid changes, right? Anything, any, any other properties, of course, in the FOXP2 gene itself, but I mean, also in the rest of the mouse genome are still mouse. Um, but that is, after all, the hypothesis we want to test, right? What do these two amino acid changes do? And this is quite different from the normal version, what people usually do in order to study the disease, namely destroyer gene, as also happens for the speech impairment in humans, where you have one of the two copies destroyed. If you destroy both copies, by the way, the mouse dies with three weeks of age and is pretty in a desperate state. So that will not help you much to understand the deficit in humans. But of course, how speech-impaired mice look like um, is pretty relevant to the question of how speech, humanized speech mice might look like. So these are the two mice model system we have. So again, if you're kind of pessimistic, you say, well, that's it. Um, but obviously, if you think about even a second longer, no, no one claims from a model system that it fully recapitulates that what you want to model, right? I mean, that's what a model system is about. After all, these mice are still quite normal mice. Um, <clears throat> maybe I didn't listen carefully enough. Maybe they don't live long enough. But um, clearly, they don't talk, right? Nobody would claim that one, two amino acid changes would, would uh, be able to, to make such a complex phenotype like speech, right? I mean, that was totally ridiculous. But what you can do, of course, is um, you can look at many different levels of that mouse, uh, physiological level, molecular levels, histological levels, and try to understand what features do change compared to the speech-impaired mouse and try to make sense um, what happens in that, in that mouse model. And uh, we spent the last five years pretty extensively doing all these kind of different levels. Obviously, there's many things one can do. I tried to just walk you briefly to some of the main findings. So one important finding is because FOXP2 is not ex only expressed in the brain. It's like most of the genes where the, we just have 20,000 protein coding genes. So they have to do many different jobs, and that's probably FOXP2 is no exception. It ha it, it's necessary in many different tissues, probably during development, probably also uh, in adult stages. So it's expressed in the, in the gut, and it's expressed in different neurons of the brain, not in the hippocampus, for example, but in Purkinje cells and medium spiny neurons of the stratum. Um, in heart cells. So what is important is that our mice, our humanized mice, are still very normal mice. They're pretty healthy, and we scanned many, many parameters measuring mouse physiology in the German mouse clinic, and they show no difference that is significant except for significantly but slightly decreased exploratory behavior. We find less dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, um, tissue levels, especially in the basal ganglia, so a structure of the brain, that I come to in a second, we find that humanized mice have longer dendritic trees in neurons of the stratum of the cortex and the thalamus where FOXP2 is expressed, but interestingly not in Purkinje cells where FOXP2 is also expressed. Um, during synaptic plasticity studies, we find that in the stratum, but not in the Purkinje cells, we find a stronger synaptic plasticity, long-term depression, a form of synaptic plasticity. On the behavioral level, we find that pups vocalize with slightly lower pitch, which is kind of cool if you study speech, but if you think about a second more, it's pretty hard to interpret. Um, and recently we did, uh, together with Anne Grable at the MIT, um, learning experiments that target especially those, those regions that are affected in a conditional TMAS task. And they show actually faster learning behavior. Interestingly, the speech-impaired mice, 
They show more phenotypes, so they're also healthy, they do fine, but show a variety of subtle significant differences in lung function and metabolism, maybe showing that FOXP2 is expressed in many places, and in most places you can do well with just one copy, but you see subtle effects if you measure carefully. They have slightly more dopamine in the basal ganglia. They have a reduced synaptic plasticity. They have a general normal pop vocalization, and they have impairments in similar, not identical tasks that involve motor skill learning. So what we currently think where we are is that humanized FOXB2 affects corticobasal ganglia circuits, which are circuits that go from the cortex to the basal ganglia over the thalamus back to it, which are important, um, which are affected in Parkinson's disease, important in Huntington's disease, and are thought especially be important for um, reward-based learning. And in these cells, we see effects of humanized FOXB2 that go partly in the opposite direction in the speech-impaired mice, so that we conclude currently that the two amino acid changes affect these particular corticobasal ganglia circuits and affect them in a way so that the humanized mice show a gain of function phenotype and a subset of the affected phenotype in the heterozygous knockouts. And more generally, that maybe this mouse model is um, some hope at least to study some aspects of human brain evolution uh, in a mouse model. So with that, thank you for your patience and my mic for their patience. Good afternoon, and thank you uh, for coming today. Um, today I'm going to be talking about uh, behavioral and brain asymmetries, and in many ways uh, my talk uh, complements uh, several of the talks we've heard previously. Uh, just to give you, by way of background, um, our lab is uh, interested in the evolution of language, and in particular in relation to the emergence of hemispheric specialization. So what is hemispheric specialization? It is um, um, sensory, motor, and cognitive processes that are differentially processed or represented um, in the left and right uh, cerebral hemispheres. Probably the two most overt uh, manifestations of hemispheric specialization in our species is handedness, um, so if you take a look here, this is the percentage of actually left-handed people um, in, from different cultures. Um, uh, you can see here that uh, the Spanish are very deliberal, will tolerate 25% of their population being left-handed. Uh, that would be in contrast to, say, the Sudanese or the Iraqis, which are very uh, less tolerant of left-handedness. But overall, uh, although there is cultural variation, um, we as a whole are right-handed. In addition, uh, language... Uh, is a highly specialized uh, and lateralized function in the human brain. Um, so these are some very old data uh, from uh, Rasmussen and Milner. It's the WADA test where they inject sodium amytal into the carotid artery and it anesthetizes each half of the brain. Um, they did this in a sample of right and left-handed individuals. And it turns out, if you look at the percent of the sample, about 96% of people who are right-handed, if you anesthetize the left half of their brain, they will show speech arrest. In other words, they will stop talking. All right, compared to uh, 2% uh, if you anesthetize the right hemisphere and 2% if you anesthetize, uh, they show speech arrest if both, in both hemispheres, if you will. For left-handers, um, it's about 70% of individuals show this uh, speech arrest if you anesthetize uh, the left hemisphere, compared to about 15 that show uh, arrest if you, uh, for both hemispheres, and 15% if you anesthetize the right hemisphere. So this is statistically different, right? But I think the real takeaway message is that, um, independent of being right or left-handed, most people are left hemisphere dominant for their language. 
Uh, lastly, because I'm going to be talking a little bit about brain asymmetries, I just want to mention that um, these functional asymmetries, for the most part, have anatomical correlates um, in the brain. So what's our view about hemispheric specialization from a phylo phylogenetic perspective? Um, it's really this, and this view has really, uh, I'd like to wish it, I'd like to say it's changed, but it, um, I'm not convinced it has. Uh, most evolutionary models uh, have proposed that hemispheric specialization emerged after the split between chimpanzees and humans. And almost everything that we read out there um, suggests that uh, the emergence of hemispheric specialization is uh, associated with some very unique human adaptations. Um, so one would be something like language and speech. All right, so uh, the idea was that uh, language needed some specialized system in the brain, and it recruited the left half of the brain, and, and that's how it ended up there and unique to our species. Uh, others have suggested things like bipedalism, all right? When our hands became increasingly free uh, and um, unencumbered from the demands of locomotion, we were able to do lots of sophisticated things with them, like gesture and uh, complex manipulation, including um, the uh, manufacture and use of tools, all right? But I think the real takeaway here is that uh, the uh, system emerged after this split. Now, there are some limitations, um, or at least historically, there have been some limitations. Um, and I'll just start, uh, point out a couple of them. Um, first, uh, I, I like to say a lot of the theory about the evolution of hemispheric specialization are theories really that were emerged without any data. All right? So um, before the year uh, 1993, um, there were almost no studies on handedness in chimpanzees. In fact, the largest single study was a, was a sample with 30 subjects, um, and they measured a handedness for four different tasks, none of which were terribly complex. Right? It was published in Science, all right? so that's good. All right? But you know, really, it was the only one. Um, in terms of the brain, um, until recently, um, uh, with the advent of um, in vivo imaging technologies, which we've heard about a little bit, um, uh, the studies relied mostly on post-mortem tissue. And as you'll hear about, I'm sure, throughout today, uh, sometimes those tissues are difficult to come by. All right? In addition to that, um, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, if you're measuring different aspects of asymmetry in the brain, and let's say you're measuring the plantum temporale, and you measure that in the um, coronal plane, and you do that in a post-mortem brain, you've cut the brain. All right, now if I want to go measure, the, say, the inferior frontal gyrus, and I want to measure it in the um, sagittal plane, I now need a whole new set of brains because I can't really work with the, site, the set of brains I've just sliced up. Um, and lastly, I'll just mention this, but I'm not really going to talk about it. There are um, some, I would say, even numerous studies now in so-called lower vertebrates that have demonstrated evidence of population-level behavioral asymmetry. So our views are beginning to change some. Uh, probably most prevalent um, are some work on podness and toads, uh, but there's also evidence from birdsong and other kinds of things. Okay, so the question is really this. Do chimpanzees and other primates show population-level handedness? Right? So we've studied this in our lab for a number of years, and I now have data on something like 450 chimps, give or take 20. And um, we've measured a variety of different things, uh, like simple reaching, so you just throw a little peanut into their cage, and they walk over and pick it up, and you simply record which hand they use. Um, this is called the tube task. Right? It's not high-tech. Right? It's not DTI. It's, uh, it's a piece of PVC that you buy at a hardware store, all right, and you cut it into a, a, uh, something about this long, and you put peanut butter on the inside of 
of the tube and then you hand it to the subject and they hold it with one hand and they extract the peanut butter with the other and we just again record which hand they use. Um, and uh, it's a really great measure because um, the hands have to work in a complementary manner, all right? So they have to hold the substrate with one hand and use the opposite to extract it. And we define the dominant hand use as the one that's doing the extraction. Throwing, um, this is actually Reed throwing one of those PVC pipes back to me, <laughs> all right, since he wanted some more. Um, uh, just for the record, they're not usually throwing tubes. They're usually throwing something else. Uh, I love to tell the story of when I first started working with chimpanzees. You know, they threw a lot, and uh, particularly new people. Uh, so, and I thought, if I'm going to get thrown at by that, I'm going to get something out of it. So we started collecting data. True scientist. Um, this is a tool use. Um, so this is Pansy from the Language Research Center. It's the same idea. Instead of peanut butter having uh, down at this end of the tube, it's at the opposite end of the tube. She can't get it with her hands. She needs a tool of some sort. So here she's gone and she's obtained a stick and she's holding it in this case and extracting with that stick. And lastly um, is manual gestures. Um, since uh, much of the theory about um, hemispheric specialization is rooted in um, the notion of language, we thought, well, let's try to look at something lateralized in the domain of communication. So we looked at manual gestures. And almost all of the chimps we work with uh, if, are captive, so for the most part, they will point to request food from people so you can set up experiments pretty easily um, to elicit that response, and then you can record uh, their left or right hand use. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because the issue about how you classify subjects as left or right-handed is, is to me, is a mess. Uh, but for this purpose, uh, we can calculate a z-score based on the frequency of their right and left-hand use. And uh, we can, uh, if they have a z-score greater than 1.96, we'll call them right-handed. Less than 1.96, we'll call them left-handed. And everyone else is what we'd call ambiguously handed. Okay, so here are some data. Um, what I've calculated here on the y-axis rather than uh, is just a ratio. So it's just recently with the total number of right-hand subjects divided by the total number of left. And uh, you can calculate a ratio, and we can do a chi-square statistic and determine whether or not they're significantly more right than left-handed subjects. Um, and if you look at throwing, that's true. So the chimps are right-handed for throwing. They're right-handed for manual gestures. They're right-handed for the use of the tube task. They're right-handed for simple reaching. Um, they show no bias for tool use. All right? And, um, you know, they're a little more right-handed for throwing than the other kinds of actions. And if I calculate an overall handedness for the subjects based on all of these measures, um, uh, which I, again, won't go into story detail, um, that's represented here. Um, and essentially, there's about a two-to-one ratio. So there's about twice as many right-handers than left-handers. Here I've shown you what you typically hear the ratio for humans. All right? So if you ask a neuropsychologist, what's the ratio of right to left handedness in the human species, they'll say, oh, it's 8 to 1 or 9 to 1. Okay? Uh, maybe not so high if you live in Spain. All right? But um, still, it's, 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 they are far more right-handed, all right, as a species humans are, that is, than the chimps, at least the chimps we study. This is uh, data from almost 1,300 non-human primates that have all been tested on the tube task, okay? And um, the stars indicate those that show a population-level bias. That is to say, where a statistical majority of the individuals show a preferred hand use of right or left-handedness. So here's our chimp data again. So they're right-handed. The gorillas are right-handed. The bonobos are not. Um, but there's an age effect here, really. Um, if I included only the adults, this would pop up. Um, and interestingly enough, the orangutans are left-handed. 
and significantly left-handed. Right, so this, that constitutes the apes. If you look at old world monkeys, um, baboons seem to show a right-hand bias. Debraza monkeys are left, as are the snub-nosed monkeys. All right, whereas uh, rhesus macaques and Barbary macaques, uh, they show some trends, but they're not statistically significant. And then two um, new world monkey species have been tested, squirrel monkeys and capuchins. And again, they show some biases in one direction or another, but as a population, they don't make statistically. Right? So other species can show some population-level handedness too. Right? But what I'd really emphasize is two things. Number one, none of them are getting to, you know, this, this isn't scaled to eight. It's scaled to three or four. All right? So even in the case of the orangutan that shows this very pronounced left-hand bias, um, the ratio of you know, dominant to non-dominant individuals is somewhat less than what we typically see in humans. Um, if you ask me on the little card, why is this the case, I'm not sure I'm going to have a good answer. Okay, So you could save some, uh, maybe have a better question. Um, I'll, I'll throw one out now. Um, if, let's just focus on the apes. The orangutans are the most arboreal. The gorillas are the most terrestrial. So if I move these around instead of phylogenetic distance, but rather terrestrial to arboreality, the story could be interesting. Uh, the same for the old world monkeys, Debraza, Stemnos, highly arboreal, baboons, highly terrestrial. So maybe it has something to do with uh, terrestriality. What about the brain? You can measure brain asymmetries a lot of ways. Um, but it's a challenge to do comparative work in this area. So um, we have done a number of studies of brain asymmetry in chimpanzees looking at a variety of brain structures, um, such as the plantum temporality, the hippocampus, amygdala, basal ganglia structures, such as the caudate putamen. Um, and, the, and some of those can be studied in other primates relatively easily. But when you get to the cortical areas, it's a bit more of a challenge. Um, uh, so today I wanted to try to talk a little bit about um, brain asymmetries in cortical sulci, because right? that seems to be one that people like to study, and it has a long history in our discipline. And uh, the work I'm going to be talking about today uh, comes from, all comes from MRI work. Um, so we now have um, MRI scans, in vivo MRI scans, from 115 chimpanzees um, from our lab. We've also um, scanned 65 macaque monkeys from three different species. I'll jump ahead and just say there aren't any species differences in the asymmetries that we've measured among the macaques, so I'm just going to lump them into one uh, genus. And then we've also included um, some data from human subjects, 66 subjects. And uh, they, they've all been scanned with a T1-weighted um, structural magnetic resonance imaging. Some were scanned at 3 tesla and some at 1.5, and this is, uh, becomes an important issue for Certain kinds of comparisons, I don't think they're, they're not a big issue for the results I'll be talking about today. And um, the scans, for the most part, are collected when the animals are down for their annual physical exam. We'll go take a picture of their brain. So today, <laughs> I'm going to present something new. Um, recently, I've developed a working collaboration with a, a gentleman named Jeff Mangan. He's at the Neurospin Institute in Paris. And I, for those graduate students in the crowd, I would always recommend that you find collaborators in Paris. <laughs> Um, he's developed a software program called BrainVisa, and BrainVisa has an automated pipeline that allows you uh, to automatically extract the salt dye of the brain. So this is a T1 scan. The scan is homogenized in terms of getting uniformity of the signal through the brain. Um, if then a mask is made of the brain, this is really not necessary because we skull strip the brain first, but sometimes they don't skull strip, so they make a mask that distinguishes the brain from skull. 
It then creates our split brain mass, so it splits the brain in half based on some landmarks that we give the program, notably the, the ACPC, the anterior commissure, posterior commissure lines. Um, so it makes a right hemisphere or a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere, and it also distinguishes the cerebellum from the cortex. Then it then creates um, it distinguishes or segments the gray from the white matter, and it creates these meshes. And this is the white matter mesh, and this is the gray matter mesh. And if it fuses them together, uh, it then you get something that looks like this, which is then uh, whatever these gaps are left over is where you see the sulci. Um, and so we've measured this in different primates. We've used the software to measure asymmetries in sulci for the left and right hemispheres for uh, macaques, chimps, and humans. So in the macaques, we've looked at the central sulcus, and the arcuate here, and then the principal sulcus, or the rectus, it's sometimes referred to as. Uh, we've also looked at uh, two temporal lobe sulci, the sylvian fissure here and the superior temporal sulcus. We've also looked here at the uh, intraparietal and also here the lunate. So uh, here's the chimp brain, same thing. It's, you can obviously see it has more sulci, uh, but we've tried to look at the same sulci as, uh, with, with some additions as in the rhesus. So here, again, is the central sulcus, um, here's the frontal lobe sulci we've looked at. So this is the superior precentral. This is the inferior frontal. This is the uh, precentral inferior, and this is the frontal orbital. We were particularly interested in these two because these, this is the posterior, and this is the anterior border of this gyrus that forms uh, Broca's area, homologue, in the chimp brain. We've also looked at the sylvian fissure and the superior temporal. Also, in the uh, parietal lobe, we've looked at the inferior postcentral, superior postcentral, and the intraparietal. And lastly, uh, the lunate as well. Um, and this is a human. I don't have a picture of a human. Um, we all know what we look like. Um, and these are, again, just the same sulci labeled in the human brain. All right, so where there's common sulci, we can directly compare the species. Where they're not, we can look at you know, within subject uh, or within species um, variability. Uh, before we do that, let me tell you one thing that BrainVisa does that's really, really interesting. In the olden days, when they measured sulci asymmetries, they typically just measured. They would take literally a piece of um, the um, dental floss, basically, and run it up the sulcus and measure its length. Um, with BrainVisa, it actually extracts the entire surface area of the sulcus. In addition to that, depending on the plane that the sulcus runs, it, it will divide it into arbitrary units. Um, like in this case, it's a dorsal ventral movement of, say, the central sulcus, and it will actually calculate the average thickness. And uh, just since I, he's standing, um, <laughs> just so you know, for the rhesus monkeys, uh, we found no evidence of population-level asymmetries all right, in any of the sulci for either um, surface area or mean depth. Uh, in contrast, for the chimpanzees, we found a number. We found leftward asymmetries in surface area and depth um, in the superior uh, precentral, sylvian fissure. Uh, we also found it for the intraparietal, these leftward asymmetries in all these cases, and also in the lunate. This is the data when you look at humans, chimps, and monkeys. All right, And some so-called we can compare and some we can't. Um, this one, humans are very leftward for the central compared to chimp and macaques. The frontal orbital, this is very interesting. The humans show a right bias and the chimps show a left. And uh, Sylvian fissure, they're quite comparable. Um, for the intraparietal, again, human chimp looks pretty comparable. Okay, but you get some differences here in the superior and the lunate. Okay, this is what I think is most interesting and this will be my last slide. Um, this is actually, if you measure the, the gray matter thickness of the sulci, the gray matter that, of the buried sulci. 
in the superior front, uh, excuse me, the sylvian fissure and the superior uh, temporal sulcus, there's really no difference between the, the humans and the chimps. But in the frontal lobe, there's quite pronounced differences. Uh, the humans show a very robust leftward asymmetry and gray matter thickness uh, relative to the chimpanzees. And we feel, see a little bit in the parietal. So I'm going to jump, this, uh, very qu- jump through this very quickly. Um, I would argue that there is evidence for population-level asymmetries in chimpanzees, and they exist, pr- therefore exist prior to the split with humans. Um, the evidence of behavioral and brain asymmetries in more distantly related species, I think, is a little less robust. Um, it isn't really clear why there's this difference in the handedness between the species, and I, th- I think we could spend a lot of time talking about why that might be the case. And lastly, I'd just end by saying that um, uh, I think our findings suggest that brain asymmetries actually facilitated the evolution of complex motor and cognitive function in human, ra- rather than we're instead of rather instead of being a consequence of them, which is in essence historically um, what has been proposed. All right, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.